You are listening to our Southside Baptist Church podcast with our pastor, Dr. Jeff Parker. For more audio content, please refer to our website, SSBaptistChurch.com. What powerful words, and earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you love us. We thank you for the energy and the passion of worship. The Bible says that you inhabit the praises of your people. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And, Lord, even as children begin to make their way and they go to children's church, we pray that you will encourage those that lead. Lord, that as I think about D.L. Moody when he returned from a meeting, someone asked him how many had come to Christ, and he said two and a half. And they said two children and one adult. He said, oh, no. He said, two children and one adult. He said, not two two adults and one child, but he said, two children and one adult because he meant that these children have their whole life ahead of them to live for the gospel. So, Lord, we thank you for this ministry. We pray for it. Pray for more volunteers. And, Lord, be with us in this sanctuary as we look to your word and we pray all of this, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that you would cleanse me by the blood of the Lamb. Use me, dear Lord, as a tool in your hand. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask you to remain standing. Take your Bibles and turn over to 1 John. While the kids are beginning to make their way, 1 John. And we're going to pick up about verse 13, 1 John chapter 4, verse 13, and we're going to read from there. I've titled this message today, and uh, John, you and Eric may have to think about this one for a minute. I told Reggie, I titled this message today, I Cried Over Whitney Houston. I Cried Over Whitney Houston. Just here recently, we were flipping the channels and we came across the movie, The Bodyguard. Uh, Kevin Costner and Whitney Houston in this movie and it was uh, pretty much, but it was down to that last little bit when Whitney Houston sings that song that has made her famous, made her uh, popular. I would say that Whitney Houston is probably one of the most gifted female vocalists of all times. Unbelievable individual. In fact, she's uh, an individual that when she died, her funeral, I, I watched her funeral. Kevin Costner spoke at her funeral. Also the Winans, C.C. Winan and, and this gospel group. And they spoke about their friendship with Whitney Houston and the power of her voice and the power of her life in a critical juncture when the Winans and Whitney Houston were looking to the future of their musical careers, CeCe Winan and that group shared at her funeral, they shared how they went that gospel route and Whitney Houston went that secular route. Kevin Costner shared as well. He said Whitney Houston was the kind... She said, he said she was very shy. Now listen to this. Very insecure in who she was. 
Now here's an, a captivating, beautiful African-American woman whose voice was probably the epitome of the angels singing in heaven. And yet there was insecurity in her life. In fact, Kevin Costner said, if I remember, that he had to talk her in to believing that she could play that role in this movie, The Bodyguard. So as we were watching just that last little bit of this movie, just surfing the channels, she was singing that song, and I just began to cry. Well, Sheila was in the living room, and, and I became very uncomfortable. You know, you want to be a man's man, you know. You don't want to show any, you know. And in and, and that moment, Reggie, I was showing weakness, uh, vulnerability. Tears were beginning to stream down my face, and I was beginning to sob and to cry, and I was embarrassed in front of Sheila. I didn't want her to see that. And finally, just through great emotion... I looked at her and I said, if only I could go back. If only I could have talked to her about the gifts and the talents and the abilities that God has given her, how greatly God could have used her and I could have counseled her away from those secular voices that ultimately, ultimately would, would, would lead to the destruction and the abuse of her voice. And in the end, she would die of an overdose in a hotel bathroom. And even beyond that, if I could say to her, Whitney, you've got to get help. Don't go down this road. You've got talent and ability. Give it to Christ. Because if you don't, if you continue, it's not just you, Whitney. It's your daughter. She will die exactly the same way you died. And I just wept. I wept over a broken life. I was embarrassed. I was ashamed. I didn't want Sheila to see it. But in that moment, that still, small voice of God's Holy Spirit was saying to me, Son, that's what I love about you. Never lose that. Never lose that love for people. Now, in 1 John... In chapter 4, we're looking at verse 13. John the Beloved is, is writing and he gives us some interesting words here. He says, we know that we live in him because we know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him, and he and God. Paul said it this way, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ is living in you if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. If you've repented of your sin, turned to Christ, believe in Christ, Christ loves you and he's living in you. You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. In verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. We don't rely in our own behavior, in our own righteousness. We don't rely in our own goodness, whether we've turned over a new leaf, whether we've had a good week or a bad week. We don't rely on anything but the love of God. That's our salvation. Now watch what he says here. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. 
In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like Him. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out all fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love, verse 19, because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he's what? What is he? He is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you. We love you. And Lord, we give you glory. We just thank you, dear Lord, for this day and all the blessings of it. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. When I was uh, out at Fort Sam Houston, I was in officer school, and one night we went out to eat with another couple who was also there stationed at Fort Sam Houston. We went into this pizza hut, Sheila and I did, with this other couple, and they had out in the waiting area they had this big tall machine that had a handle on it and you held the handle, you put your money in and it registered your love. Your, I guess how, how loving you were, how passionate you are or what kind of guy or girl you were. So Sheila and I, Sheila said, let's do it. So I got over there, you know, people are standing around, people are waiting to be seated. We're out there in San Antonio, Texas and so I'm standing there, and I grabbed the handle of this thing, and man, it shot to the top. It said, you're a hunk of hunk of burning love. I mean, buddy, it just, it just went to the shop, top. So Sheila said, well, I want to do it. I want to do it. And I said, well, you know, okay. So I put coin in, and Sheila grabbed that thing, and she's already laughing because it went down to the very bottom, and it said, you're a cold fish. <laughs> now, I want you to know something. We looked at each other. We had a good laugh. We've been married over 40 years, so something must have been right. And the reality is we said to ourselves, you know, we're going to make a good couple because we hadn't been long married. This was before the kids were born. I was out there in an officer school. This was just a different time in our life. But let me ask you this. Could you imagine if we had some kind of contraption out there in our foyer that was free and all you had to do was to stand on it and to hold some instrument and it register where you are spiritually on that spiritual love meter. In other words, to determine how your love, not based on the world's definition, but your, the, but your love, your love quotient based on love as it is defined in the Bible. Loving God and loving your fellow man. Wouldn't that be powerful? We'd probably go down in numbers even more. But the reality is, is first of all, let me ask you, why is this love factor 
so important in your life and in my life. You know, Jesus said this. He said, by this shall all men, he told his disciples, he said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciple by your love for one another. That's what he said. He said, listen, this is your identity. This is your name tag. This defines who you are. This lets people know whether you're a follower of Christ or not. Your love quotient. Man, that's powerful. And so I would say that it's pretty important. You know the one who wrote these words? Who wrote 1 John? He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. He wrote the book of Revelation. Our co-pastor here is already smiling. Reggie, why are you smiling? Who wrote this book? And what kind of man was John? Yeah. You see Reggie. Reggie's such a kind guy. Reggie doesn't want to have to explain anything when he gets to heaven. But the bottom line is, is Reggie said, well, John is a loving man, but he was, and he just kind of lets it fade out there. But the reality is is that Jesus called James and John what? He called them sons of thunder, which meant that they were hotheads. They had a short fuse. They, They had a problem with their temper. In fact, we find a situation where one time, the people were not accepting of Jesus, a Samaritan village. And what did, you're laughing now. Our co-pastor is laughing now. But the reality is, the reality is, is the reason he's laughing is because John was a hothead, quick-tempered, and he said, Lord, do you want us to pray down fire on this village? So John doesn't have a very good reputation. But Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciple. In other words, listen, your identity is your love factor, the love of Christ. It's not your political party. It's not your political candidate. It's not your ideology. It's not your favorite sports team. Your commitment to God and his word is seen in how you love God and love people. And from everything we can tell about John the Beloved, he had a radical transformation. He went from the sons of thunder, he went from a guy that wanted to pray down fire and destroy an entire village to the one that, listen, when Jesus is dying on the cross, he looks at John the Beloved and he says, John, behold your mother, meaning Mary. Mary, he says to his mother, behold your son. He entrusts the care of his mother. Jesus entrusts the care of his mother to the most gentle and most godly and most loving man that he knew. Take care of her, John. And you know how. Changed. It's just different. You know, John the Beloved, is his, one of his disciples was Polycarp. And we learn from Polycarp, we learn from Jerome, who wrote a commentary on Galatians, even early, in the early beginnings of the New Testament church. This is what Polycarp, this is what those said of John the Beloved. Listen to this. This is an extra-biblical source. It said, Blessed John the Beloved, the evangelist, in extreme old age at Ephesus. That's where John probably died. He died in Ephesus. He used to be, listen to this, John the Beloved in his age, up in his 90s, we believe. He used to be carried into the congregation in the arms of his disciple disciples he was unable to say anything except little children love one another he was asked one time by those who were tired of hearing these words and were wearied by them 
They said, Master, why do you always say this? John the Beloved, this aged figure, the only disciple to die a natural death, said this, because it is the Lord's command, and if this, is, if this only is done, it is enough. John says, to sum up, now remember this, remember this, listen. And you've heard it a thousand times if you've listened to me for years. But when I'm in Zimbabwe, and, and here I am, I've got an earned doctorate, and I'm with an old African pastor, and I'm going out to a village where people have never heard the gospel. They've never heard the gospel before. How do you talk to people who have no frame of reference as to the scripture, as to Jesus Christ, who he is? They know nothing. And I'm looking at old Mufundis Jaina. Brian, you remember Mufundis Jaina? I'm looking at Jaina and I said, Mufundis, how do I say what I'm going to say? And he asked, what passage are you preaching on? And I said, I'm preaching on the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten. Mufundis Jaina took that jacket of mine and he said, Nyama, Nyama, that meant flesh. And he said, Mwari. And he pounded his chest, meaning God. And he said, Mwari, Akafeka, Munyama. He said, God dressed in the flesh of man and invaded his creation to do what only he could do. John the Beloved wrote those words and John said, do you want me to sum up the Savior? Do you want me to sum up God? God is love. That's it. You know, to me, that's powerful. What John the Beloved was saying, the one who was the most intimately close to Jesus Christ, he was saying, let me tell you, Jesus came to reveal the nature and the character of the Father. God is love reveals the character of your God, my God, our Creator, His character, His nature. It's the essence of His being. He's love. And you and I are the temple of His Holy Spirit. And listen to me, listen to me closely. When you and I are in any place, love ought to drip off us. People can know us, recognize us. They're a follower of Jesus Christ. How do they know that? Because this person loves with an abandonment. Well, let me ask you something. How are you doing? How am I doing on this, on this love thing? If we had some kind of assessment tool, if we could do some kind of inventory. You know, when you take a personality test, anybody taking a personality test? One thing that is required in a personality test is to be honest, right? It's not a true assessment tool if you're not honest. So you have to be honest, but if we had an assessment tool, we don't have any kind of gizmo or gadget that we can put in the, sanctuary, in, the, in the foyer out there. But if we were to do inventory on this thing of our spiritual love language, how we're doing as a Christian in the area of love, kind of a personality test. Number one, let me ask you something. Say amen if you're listening. Say amen if you're listening. Are you a loving person? I want you to think about that. Are you a loving person? Now you may say, well, why is that important? Because our 
Because we live in a nation today. You know, you think about it. Our nation is fractured and splintered and divided. And let me tell you, we, we've, got a, we've got a love problem in America today. And we've got a love problem even within the body of Christ, even within the church. Because the church is splintered and fractured. But are you a loving person? Do you exude love? Do, do people feel it when they're around you? You see, the world can hate. The world can hate people. The world can practice tribalism. That's what a Nebraska senator said. He said the problem in America. He said we're, we're tribalistic now. We're trying to identify. We're polarized today around our love for a personality or our hatred for a personality. But listen, the church does not have that privilege or that right. The church cannot, Christians and followers of Christ must not hate anybody. Because why? Because the nature of our God, God is what? God is love. By this shall all men know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. The Bible even says it. John says it here. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. If a person says, I love God and they hate their brother, the Bible says he's a liar. He's not only a liar to God, he's a liar to himself. You see, you and I as Christians have a responsibility, so are you a loving person? Let me ask you something else. Are you a forgiving person? You forgive people, does it come easy? You know, you remember Jesus when he hung on the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. When he was asked the prayer, teach us to pray, Lord, his disciples. said, teach us to pray. One point in that prayer, he says, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. Are you a loving person? Secondly, are you a forgiving person? Do you forgive people easily? Or number three, do you hold on to a grudge? You see, if there's anything that will drive your love meter down, if there were such a thing, your score down is unforgiveness, bitterness, anger. You can't forgive people. And let me tell you, when you and I hang on to bitterness, when we hang on to resentment, when we hang into, on to hatred that begins to seep into our soul, it begins to affect us. We can't adequately love God because we don't love our fellow man. Let me tell you, let me tell you one thing. And I love every one of them. I love your kids. And I love your grandkids. I love your great-grandkids if you got them. And let me tell you, if you want to get on my good side, you love my kids, you love my grandkids. It's the bottom line. We're made that way. God's the same way about his kids. He's the same way about his creation. So do you find yourself wanting to hang on to a grudge, not, not letting go? In Hebrews 12, 14, and 15, it says that you and I are to aggressively pursue peace. In fact, let's just take a left. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Now, if there's any consolation, this doesn't mean Jeffrey's to come down here yet. This is not going to be a long message, I don't think. But in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 14, watch this. It says, make every effort to live in what? Let's say it out loud. Boy, that was pitiful. Let's say it again. Make every effort to live in what? Peace. Peace. With who? With men or women who look like me, think like me, 
same color as me, same political party as me, same sports team as me. Does it say that? No, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, because God is love and you're the temple of God's Holy Spirit, Paul is saying, if Paul wrote this, make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be what? You can't be holy if you don't love all men. It's impossible. And to be holy without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Now watch verse 15. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter spirit grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now everybody look this way. You've heard me say this before. Are you a loving person? Are you a forgiving person? Do you hold on to a grudge? Because let me tell you what will ruin your ability to love other people is when you get a bitter spirit. When you get a bitter spirit and you can't let go of a wrong that's been done to you. You know what the Bible calls the word bitter in the Greek? It's the word pikros. Pikros in the Greek means an anger that sticks to you. Let me tell you, that's the problem in America today. We've got a lot of angry polarized, tribalistic people. And listen, they're not just out there in the secular world, they're in the church today. Sometimes I want to scream on Twitter, scream on Facebook, please, evangelical community, shut up! We don't care, ladies, how many books you've written. We don't care what you're doing. Please just be quiet because you're killing us. You're polarizing us and you're dividing the body of believers. Please stop it. Because why? Because God is love and you and I are the temple of God's Holy Spirit and if God is living in us, we can't hate anybody. We just can't do it. And if, God, and if we have the audacity to think we can, God says to us, you're a liar. Imagine God saying to a professing Christian, you're a liar. You see, but what happens? People get a bitter spirit. There was a lady who's written several studies, done a great deal of work, and in my opinion, she's ruining, ruining her testimony. I was down in Florida several months ago. I was sitting with my sister, and my sister said, let me read something to you. And this woman was writing about a theologian that she had went to visit who made a statement about how good she looked. And Sheila and I immediately looked at each other and began to try to guess who the theologian was. And then all of a sudden I stopped and said, isn't that wrong? We don't make a slanderous statement about somebody else just in a generalized way because we, we broad brush every theologian when we do that. But we live in a day when people are drawing lines. And it's even within the body of Christ. And the danger is, is that you and I begin, if we're not careful, to find a level of bitterness, sticky anger that begins to stick to us. Charles Stanley said this. Stanley said a person who is bitter everywhere they go, picture it this way. Listen to this. This is powerful. He says it's like having a stinky, smelly ointment on you and everywhere you go... You not only stink up the room, the smell drips off of you, and even after you've left the room, they can still smell you. Been there. 
Let me tell you something about a Christian, a follower of Christ, those you and I filled with God's Holy Spirit. We cannot hang on to a grudge. We are commanded to let go of unforgiveness. We are commanded to love. It's in the imperative. We're told to love God, but we're also told to love our, our brother. Now, number four, this is a big one. Turn to your neighbor and say, this is going to be a big one. Do you block people off? In other words, do you block people off? Do you categorize people? Are you trying to figure out what label they're under so that you can determine whether you will like them or not? Do you find yourself wanting to, to block people off, to categorize people, to find out where they stand on a particular issue or whatever so that you then can feel the freedom to like them or not like them? Let me tell you what that is. That is a spirit that's directly out of the pit of hell. You know what the Bible says about God? John 3, 16, Jesus said to Nicodemus, he, I believe they're sitting at that fireside. He's sitting there with Nicodemus, and this dialogue's unbelievable. As Nicodemus is saying, Lord, we know that your teacher come from God, for no man can do the things that you do. And Jesus smiles and says, Nicodemus, in the language of the African, you must be born again, Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, how can a man be born again? When he's old, he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb. Jesus laughs and says, Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and you know not these things? And then he smiles and says, Nicodemus, come close. For God so loved the world, the cosmos, every part of this creation, every man, woman, boy and girl, every baby in the womb, understand this, your creator God, your fa our father. Listen, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. you and I are true Christians we can't hate and if God doesn't push it farther number five do you love those you deem an enemy do you love those that you say you know they're, they're an enemy they're, they're unlovable you know in Matthew chapter 5 verses 43 and 44 you know what Jesus had the audacity to say Jesus said, I want you to love your enemy. And you know what our thought is, God, I can't do that. <laughs> Jesus says, that's exactly right. You can't. You'll need me to do that one. You see, sometimes God requires us to love people that we would preferably not love. God calls us to like people that we preferably would not like. Because they are... They are so opposite of us. We find it difficult even to carry on a conversation with them. And you may say, well, they're kind of, I hate to admit it, Brother Jeff, but I'm just going to tell you, they're my enemy. You know what God says? Love them. Love your enemy. Did Jesus love the Pharisees? You better believe it. In Luke chapter 15, the story of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son, the prodigal son. You know what was preempted that, those three stories? 
was Jesus was receiving, he was being slandered. They were saying, you're a friend of the wine-bibber and the glutton. The Pharisees there were upset that Jesus was receiving people that they did not like. And Jesus tells his story, the lost coin, the lost sheep. And then when he gets to the lost son, what's the climax of Luke 15? It is the elder brother. The elder brother, when the prodigal comes home, what does the elder brother do? He's not going to party with them. He's not going to fellowship with them. He's angry over the prodigal being allowed to come within the family. He hates his brother. That's his problem. Who comes out? Father walks out there. The father puts his hand on him. This is, Jesus, this is how much Jesus loved the Pharisees. Do you know what the father said to the prodigal son? I meant to the elder brother. He said, he put his hand, he said, listen, son, all that I have is yours. Everything is yours. Why don't you come fellowship with us? Your brother was dead. Now he's alive. He's lost. He was lost. Now he's found. Why don't you come fellowship with us? Son, everything that I have is yours. That was Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. That's love. Let me tell you something. You'll never justify hate. You can't. Thirdly, fallacies of Christian love. Love does not mean, number one, that I agree with you. Do you know you can love somebody and not agree with them? I love Adrian Rogers here. In the middle of our denominational controversy back in the 70s and early 80s, he was sitting there with another denominational leader. And they were disagreeing on the inerrancy of Scripture. The fact that the Bible is the authority, the final authority, and the Word of God from cover to cover. And this man looks at Adrian Rogers and says, Dr. Rogers, you know, we need, to, we need to agree. Rogers made this statement. He said, my friend, we don't have to agree, and I will not change my conviction here. There are times when you and I have to understand something. Love doesn't mean that I agree with you, but love does mean this. Because I'm a child of God, I will love you even though I disagree with you. Do you feel that in America today? Number two, love does not mean I will accept your lifestyle. But it does mean that I will love you in spite of it. You will never find not one person in the LGBT movement that would ever tell you that I've been anything but loving and respectful and kind. Never. You won't find it. Now, every one of them who are friends that I've known through the years, even those that I've counseled, will tell you they knew exactly where I stood on the LGBT movement. They knew where I stood in the area of how I interpret and understand the Bible to teach that this is not the lifestyle that God intended and that it's in disobedience to the Word of God. But they knew this, I loved them anyway. You see, God calls us, listen, we may not agree with people. We may not even agree with their lifestyle. But we can still love them where they are. And let me tell you, part of the problem in the LGBT movement has been the inability of the body of Christ to speak truth in a loving way. Number three, it's a hard one. Love does not mean I can fellowship with you. 
You see, sometimes I may have to break fellowship with somebody. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9-13, through 13, Paul said there was a man in the church that was living in a sexually immoral relationship with his stepmother. And Paul said to the church at Corinth, he said, listen, you've got to break fellowship with this man. You've got to turn him over to the devil. You've got to give him over to Satan and let God deal with him by turning him over to the enemy. We talked about that in our men's group this morning. So love doesn't mean that I agree with you. Love doesn't mean that I accept your lifestyle. We may not be able to agree, but let me tell you one thing I can do. I can love you regardless of your lifestyle. I can, re- I can love you even though I disagree with you, and I can love you to the degree that if I do fellowship with you, I will take that opportunity to speak truth into your life. I will speak truth, but I'll do it in love. Now let's conclude. Let me ask you something. Who's difficult to love? I want you to think. Just think in yourself. Who is on your difficult to love list? In-law? Mother-in-law? Father-in-law? Who's difficult to love? Now I want you to listen closely to what I'm about to say. Anybody comes to mind, and listen, it, can, it may not be an individual. Some of you in this room may be dealing with prejudice. You may be dealing with tribalism, animosity, because people are not of your political persuasion, whatever that may be, or they don't stand on a particular issue the way you do. And listen, you've got, you've, got a, you've got a list of people. You've even got large blocks and categories of people that you simply do not love. You don't like them. You don't want to be around them. You have great animosity toward them. You can cover it up, but the reality is, is that you, they're your difficult-to-love list. I wrote this down. You and I need to see people that are difficult to love as a divine appointment. You and I need to see those people that are on that list, whatever that list is, as a divine appointment, almost a divine challenge from God, where God says, let's see, hey, look at, everybody look this way. It says if God leans over the banisters of heaven and he says, here, Jeff, let's see if you can love this one. This will test you. But imagine if you and I saw those people as a divine appointment with God. Imagine God were to say to you and I, I'm wanting to develop a quality or a characteristic of my Father in you. Everybody listen closely. The people that are difficult to love in your life and in my life, we have no right to write them off, to ostracize, to block them off and say we don't have to fellowship with them and we don't have to love them. We can hate them. We can be justified in our hatred of them for whatever reason we give. Listen, absolutely that is the voice of the enemy. That's the voice of Satan. The people who are difficult for you and I to love are a divine appointment by God because God is trying to develop a quality in you and I that he himself has. God is what? You're the temple of the Holy Spirit. So in essence, you and I, if we are a Christian, are the temple of of the Holy Spirit and that Holy Spirit is summed up. His character, his nature, his essence is love. Now what did we say a moment ago? What did I say to you a moment ago? 
when Jesus is sitting here around a fire with Nicodemus, this Pharisee, this ruler of the Pharisees. What does Jesus say in John 3.16, which is the great verse that everybody knows? For God so loved what? Cosmos means the entire world. You mean to tell me that God loves the people in Congress, that God loves the Supreme Court, that God loves the President. I mean to tell you that God loves that militant Muslim who had a, he had a chance would blow you up. I'm telling you that the power of love is the power to turn the hearts of people. I don't care how hard they are. Because Paul had the audacity to say this. He said, love never fails. And though there's controversy with Rob Bell's book, Love Wins, and I don't agree with it, I do wish it does. I do hope it does. I would love for all men and men, women and boys and girls to be saved. There's only one problem, it's the free will of man. And it causes it to be complicated. But I wrote this down, God is pushing you and I to do what he does to this world. And that is to love people who we consider to be unlovable. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to let go of the bitterness that may be destroying your life? Who do you need to let go of? Let me, tell you what, let me tell you what hate will do. Jeffrey, I guess he's somewhere. Like, go in, Stan. This gives you hope. You know, I, I've, I've told this story before, and I think it was the Romans that did this. But when a man committed murder, when a man committed murder and he was tried and found guilty of murder, now listen to this. They took his... They took the one that he had murdered. They took the body of the one that had been murdered and they tied it, they strapped it to the murderer. In other words, the one who was convicted of murder, his victim was strapped and tied to his body so that that body could not be removed. And you know what happened. The decay, the rot, the filth, the disease of that dead body began to affect the, 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 the assailant, began to affect the one who had committed the murder. And before long, it ate into the healthy body, and that person died an agonizing death from the body of their victim that was decomposing wrapped around themselves. When you and I hang on to unforgiveness... When we hang on to bitterness, when we don't love people, the reality is that once that hate, that anger, that resentment begins to seep within our soul, it begins to rot us from the inside out. Let me ask you something. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to let go of? You say, well, Brother Jeff, they're dead and gone. Well, let me tell you what counseling, what we do in counseling. We say, write them a long letter. If you can't go to their graveside, burn it, let go of it, 
and realize that you're probably not who you would be today if it had not been even for the pain and suffering. But your God says this, all things work together for good to them that love me. God says this, I'm going to take the pain and the hurt even of people who are deceased now who brought rain, pain and hurt into your life. I'm going to take that now because you've let go of it and I'm going to use it for glory and honor. He can do that. Who do you need to forgive today? Who do you need to let go of? Who do you need to start loving? Who do you need to let go of some animosity and the bitterness? Who have you blocked in, categorized as just a group of people that I'm going to hate? Who do you need to love? Now look this way. You can't do it without Christ. That kind of love will require something that is beyond you. And if you're here today and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, you don't know today if you're saved or not, I want to tell you this. He stands right now ready to come into your heart, into your life, and radically change you. I've seen people... Listen... I have to say this. Do you know the only person in, in all my years of ministry that ever came to me and apologized and asked me to forgive him? Was a white, a white old KKK member who I thought at one point who refused to pray for me, refused to shake my hand. They were trying to fire me out of a church. Listen. This old white KKK member came back when I was doing a funeral after I'd been in Africa for years, running across a parking lot. Listen, weeping, tears just streaming down his face. He's hollering, we're waiting to in the funeral procession. They're waiting for me to get in the car to go to the cemetery. This old man is running saying, Brother Jeff, Brother Jeff. He comes to me right there at the door of the family that I'm trying to console in which the girl had lost her mom. And I turned to him and he looks at me and he said, Brother Jeff, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry for the racism. I'm so sorry for the way I live my life. I'm so sorry for the pain and hurt I brought to your life because listen, he hurt me so bad that I not only left the church, I left the country. And he said, Brother Jeff, will you forgive me? And he's crying. You know what? I looked at him. I said, I, I, said, I forgave you a long time ago. And I hugged his neck. That man died not long after that. When they did his funeral, they brought up the fact that he had been reconciled with Brother Jeff. Who do you hate? Who do you need to love? Who do you need to forgive? You can't do it without God's Holy Spirit in you. You need Him. He'll empower you, empower you to do what you cannot do. How do you receive Christ? You repent of your sin. You come in a moment. You say to Reggie, Reggie, I want to be a Christian. I want to pray and ask Christ to come into my life. I want to be saved. I want that love in me. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we love you, we thank you, we pray, dear Lord, that even now as we go to this invitation, that God, you speak to our hearts. Lord, if there's a man or a woman, a boy or girl today who is not a Christian, that, Lord, they would give their life to you today, begin to serve you. 
Father, next week when we look at the second part of this message, we're going to talk about one of the major obstacles to us being able to love. Sometimes it's the wounds of childhood, the wounds of the past, how we handle that, how we come to find some level of reconciliation, how we find healing so we can love. I pray that everyone this year, this week, will be here next week. But Lord, I pray too that if there's one here that doesn't know you, that they come today, they give their life to Christ, and they begin to see and feel the love of God filling their heart. Lord, we praise you and we love you and we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.